If you would, I want to anchor us in a couple of verses today. And since um, this was prayed in, I'm just going to take you there. So we will move into 1 Samuel, but I'm not going to direct you there yet. I want to anchor you on a couple of points right now. This is, I would ask you to document uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, and in particular, this area of Scripture. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What has suffering to do with sin? God says that in times of spiritual, physical affliction, it is a time in which he uses that for a cleansing of the sin. When we are handicapped, when we are disabled, we are no longer able to function in a manner that easily our carnal nature can persuade us to do. That's essentially what's being said here. And this is important in the context of where we're going to see David right now. But from time to time, God allows those afflictions to scourge us, to scour us. It's a time in which we are not to despise it, but to actually see that God loves us. And it doesn't even mean necessarily that there's something overtly that you are doing. It's the fact of the matter that we're being trained, that we might not do it. Did you know that sometimes that we misunderstand that it's, we're doing something wrong and God actually is saying, no, this is to prevent you, my son and daughter, from even having any desire of that. It keeps you humble. It puts you on your face. It causes you to fall on your knees. And so the reason that this is an important link to today's teaching is because on Thursday's teaching, I summed it up in basically three words, fatigue, but not preceding fear. David feared the enemy. He then became fatigued running from the enemy. And he heard fibs from the enemy. Both inside him that translated from his lip even to indulge himself in mistruth. Now these principles right now are important to understand. Because if David as a mighty warrior and one who had a heart that followed after God was vulnerable, then we too might be in a season right now in which our fear is misplaced. How do you place it in the right spot? Well, you first of all get focused on the fact that it is the fear of the Lord that we are to have and not of the enemy. The fear of the Lord is wisdom and knowledge. God grants that. The fear of the Lord provokes us from the indulgence in evil, participating in arrogance, moving contrary to the heart of God when he's endeavoring to do great works by his mighty hand. So that's one thing to understand as we look at the life of David. Very now close to inheriting the kingdom that was promised to him. But 10 years of being one who was misunderstood, who was only attracting what some would say were the misfits of his culture. Everybody 
at this time, and most importantly, David, were just suffering from exhaustion and fear and believing in a lie instead of believing in God for what God had told him who he was and what he would become and forgetting the anointing that he had. So anchored here is what we would call the persecution and what happens when it is in fact imposed. It continues on here in this chapter of First Peter. It says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. It advances and says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, or if you would, for maybe a better comprehension, the will of our culture, the things that have become normal in the abnormal. We've walked in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Sounds like Super Bowl coming up for some. Not the believer, but for some in a culture immersed in these things, that is what they're living for. God wants them to be reached and to no longer live for that, but to live for him. So we have a mission. When we look at the life of David, we actually see one who is commissioned to represent, most importantly, the heart of a man who's really sold out for God, but who from time to time finds himself selling out for the things of the world and the things of the flesh. David is a very strong encourager of us because he actually taps into our own human weaknesses. God allows us to see that in the best of a man are also the vulnerabilities of a man. And the reason that that's important is because many times people will come to church and they live in condemnation of their failures, but not realizing that God has reconciled him, them, her, to himself. Through what? Jesus, the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, so when we come into a place, we might be heavy, but God wants that to be unloaded. If not at the door, then at the seat. If not at the seat, then at the altar. If not at the altar, then in worship and praise. If not there, then you come forward and you receive prayer and anointing that you might be free of that. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question is, we know that David was into God and that God was into David, which means that though his life wasn't perfectly lived out, it was always perfectly redeemed by God in the moment of his crisis. The areas that he failed in, mostly we see him quick to change directions, at least to begin in confession. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. This begins to now forge what happens when having left the world and what it had to offer and what we once indulged in, we make enemies of those who don't agree with leaving them behind as we take up our cross and follow the Lord. 
their expectations of how we are to live, and they don't appreciate being left behind. But far worse than you leaving them behind is being left behind when the Lord calls you and the church up. And so these times right now are important for us to be really asking ourselves, have we, with the giftings that God has given to us, presented a case to save those who yet have to be redeemed, those who yet have to change in their lifestyle, perhaps of idolatry? Anything that a man worships apart from God is literally, by definition, idolatry. And all of us, from time to time, will need to have that sobering word in our ear. Follow me, not that. Not him, not her, me. Not it. Not the what, not the where you want to be. Follow me on where I want to take you. And so in this closing right now, it says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. In 1 John, allowing you also to take note of this, Chapter 5, verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And this is one of the more relevant texts to where we'll be in 1 Samuel. Because in David's life right now, in fear, in fatigue, and in indulging in listening to the fibs of his enemies and those who were his contemporaries, not yet knitted with David, and the whisperings of the enemy, represented by a king named Achish, David was vulnerable. But it says that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We can be swayed off the course of the straight and narrow through any event that we would say has conspired against us. But the word of the Lord is that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world in any event that presents itself to challenge us in completing our life, living for God. So let's take ourselves now and move to our teaching today and be mindful as David needed to have been mindful as we reminded ourselves on Thursday. But you shall hold fast to the Lord your God, as you have done to this day. As you have done to this day, this time, maybe this day now, 
Hold fast to him. Don't try to run fast from him. Hold fast to him. If there are things right now that by virtue of fear of the enemy and fatigue that you have and believing in lies that have been spoken, whispered in your ear, written perhaps maliciously to you, you hold fast to the Lord that you might not compromise and be less than what the Lord desires to prove himself to be. So in 1 Samuel, we're going to pick it up in our next chapter, which is 29. And lately I have been kind of putting titles to these things. But I do want you to understand this is expositional teaching. I'm not titling something to then find that which works with it. I'm looking at where we are in the context of Scripture and saying, hmm, this might be something that just dials it in, puts it into an easier remembrance. But expositional teaching means we move through a chunk of relevant scripture and try to allow ourselves to be taught in it by the experience. In the Old Testament, it is the picture of principles that are doctrine in the New Testament. So we try to mine those out. But we also try to garnish from the Old Testament just real life, if you would, battlings of what it meant to follow God then, what it meant to be in the battle zones of so many different cultures. We're, for, we're pretty protected where we're at today. And we have much to be grateful for in this season and time of grace. But this I was pondering and thought that this would work very apropos, experiencing rejection in the time of defection. Defection on its application for today would simply be to desert from a previously espoused cause. I like that. To desert from a previously espoused cause. Did he just say spouse? Maybe. Maybe to some of you I did. But the essence here is much deeper. There are lawful remedies for that. But there's the greater need to remedy what happens when the cause of your life has been upended and you have diverted yourself from following the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength because of the wiles of the enemy. And so right now, one of the things that you may be experiencing is rejection. Is it an experience that is authentic or is it imaginary? It can be both. We can embellish the feeling 
of rejection by having our focus only on that and not the one who is truly the savior of our soul and the renewer of our mind and the one who's faithful. We can really allow a lot to happen to us that causes us to move away from the course that was set before us based on our feelings. So one of the things you never want to do is obey your feelings. You want to obey the fundamental voice of God's word. He's never misleading to us. He's never confusing. He's as clear in his expectations and ultimately his fulfillments through our lives as anyone has ever been in your life. But experiencing rejection in the time of defection shows us a couple of things. What the world will do, which we looked at in First Peter, which is turn its back on you and then begin to hurl stones at you for what you've done. You've left the party. You're no longer a part of the gang. You've turned into a Jesus freak. There'll be a price to pay for that, and that's what we call, and scriptures would notice, persecution. The other thing that we see here, though, in this title, Experiencing Rejection and the Time of Defection, is what God will allow to happen to us to draw us closer to him and to actually stop us from going our own way. We are looking for applause. We're looking for someone to say, all right, that sounds great. That's good. That's awesome you're doing that. Really? And we know that it's not what God had purposed for us to do. It's that we're listening to applause. We're listening to encouragement that God is not endeavoring to have for us. And so what he will do is stamp that effort with reject. Don't go there. Don't try that. Don't be that way. Veto. It's not going to pass my desk. And so sometimes what we say is, man, it's the enemy. It can be the enemy on one part of this, it can also be very much God on the other part of it. Because what he's trying to do is to rescue us from that which has taken dominion over us. And what can take dominion over us? Our flesh, our willful, intentional, carnal desires, and the enemy in his scheming Let's take a look at what happened with David and to also revisit something as well. Achish represents in the scripture, in application where David is at, the serpent or charmer. That's what his name means. He was the king of Gath, the city that Goliath came out of, the giant that David defeated as a young 15 or 16-year-old, has now become in league with him and he with them. 
he basically has signed a contract that he might find a haven, a sanctuary that is owned by Akish, the king. And this causes great problems with David, and that's what we looked at on Thursday. Great compromise. Though he got a city, he also got a stain on his reputation. And he put his people in jeopardy that ultimately they would enter into in the next chapter. Those whom he was assigned to protect became vulnerable because of his alliance with the king of Gath, Achish, cunning serpent, a wily king. And so one of the things that we need to know is that he still exists today. The voice of him and the willingness that he has and a desire to have you with him in alliance is very true. This is where last week I found this to be very interesting. But Akish in verse 12 of chapter 27, I need to just anchor us in two verses. Akish believed David. Remember, this is David who got a city from him. Achish believed David, saying, He has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, notice this, he will be my servant forever. Godly David, David the giant killer, has now come across as one who would be the servant of Achish and from Achish's perspective forever. Satan desires that you contract with him. Satan's desire is that you negotiate terms of peace. I'll give you a city. I'll give you a lifestyle. I'll give you a country. I'll give you success. What is it that I can give you? Just sign on the line. Just align yourself with me. Don't be so godly. Let me help you be more culturally relevant more politically astute, help you to be better in handling this world system. Why would he do that? Because he's the God of this world. But he's not your God, and he's not my God. But this is the dilemma that David found himself in. And then the other thing that anchors this as well is that Therefore, I will, this is verse 2 of 28. Therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. The promise of the position of what he gets to do. And Achish believed that this would be forever. See, Jesus wants to have you forever, the world, and Satan wants to have you equally as well, forever. So here's where we get into this text for today. 29, then the Philistines, they gathered together, it says, all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel, and the lords of the Philistine passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. 
hundreds and thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. The king is riding with David. The king is making a statement as he and David share this pathway, this parade, this battle display. David is showing him that he's linked. Achish, with David by him, is showing that he has his thumb on the future king of Israel. Would Achish have been aware that there was anointing that happened to David at the age of 15, and David now being 28, 29 years of age? Would he have had a clue that he was actually in gait, in trot, galloping with the future king of Israel? Do you think that was a boasting point? I believe that he would have been aware. I believe that news spread certainly within that amount of time. That would have been political points for him to say, the next king of Israel is my ally. In his mind, he was thwarting the work of God to put David in the position of ultimately the ruler of the entire area. And he probably would have said, if anybody can be the ruler of the area that I now have, it's that guy, because he loves God. He took out my best man as a 15-year-old. Can you imagine what he would do as a 30-year-old with the men that he has, with the ability that I've seen inspire those to follow him through thick and thin? So this partnership that right now is on display is both a mark against David and a boasting point for Achish. Whenever we find ourselves paralleling with our Achish, the enemy, Satan, the culture, it allows them to boast in what they've been able to say, now see who's in control. I've got them forever. They're in league with me, even though they have a commitment to God, they're in league with me. So this is what we see going on right now. And then in verse 3, the princes of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And here's where the point of the rescue comes in. They're not seeing it as Achish is seemingly picturing it. And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? Do you remember how many years? We're approaching about a year and a half that he's been in league with Achish. Now, behind the scenes, we know that he hasn't done the bidding of Achish, but the presumption is, is that from the king's perspective, he's accomplishing evil. The problem is, is, from David's perspective, he always has to hide that fact. And so to this day, I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. The defection. 
the defection right now of David towards the enemy and making an alliance right now because he was in fear and fatigued and believed in a lie, the fib, God has to rescue him from. This wasn't one of the hardest rescues that God had to do. But actually, God wouldn't have needed to do it at all if David had simply been the man that follows after his heart and simply said, Lord, I am so tired of where I'm at. And I am so in fear of what's happening to me. And I'm tired of the lies that I have heard. And remember, the lies that you hear only become real when you've voiced them as fact. We all hear lies. They only become real when we say what? Oh, it's fact right now. No. You just have to process that and allow God's promises to override that, which is not truth. And that's really what David just needed to know. Oh, wait, what was it that Joshua said? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How was it that Moses handled it? Oh, yeah. What did Abraham do? Oh, yeah. Caleb, what did this guy Mm-hmm. That's what they did. What did I do when I was 15? Oh, I believed in God and stood against these guys. I went right between two mountain zones of warriors to take on the biggest guy in the world. And I pronounced God to be the one that would judge him by my hand. That's what David needed to do. He has defected to me. And that's what the world wants to say is defection from the church. Thank you for being here today. You've shown that that's not your problem. That's a good thing. There is major church defection today. And many people in churches trying to perfect the work of God by leaving the principles of God, no longer esteeming doctrine, but emphasizing other component parts of being a Christian. Humanitarianism is becoming major. Changing moral absolutes into variables such as, ah, God's flexible. No, he's gracious and he's merciful, but he's not flexible. We are to be those who flex and bend to be honorable to the precepts of God's word. And we are not to allow culture to cause us to defile God's word and thus being responsible for defiling others. But the princes of the Philistines in verse 4 were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. Ziklag, that was his fortress. He, 600 men, their families, probably rather big, Estimates, at least in the narrow thousands, that he's overseeing because of wives and children and all of the things that come with the domestics. This is where David is at. He inherited a fortress, but guess what? It wasn't God's fortress. God would have said, you know, En Gedi was just perfect for you, David. I had some palm trees there, fresh running water, boulders that you could climb in and over and around. I've pretty much moved you everywhere that I've sovereignly protected you at. 
but you chose a fortress, a city that had the title deed held by the king of Gath, one who, in the likeness of the serpent, hisses at you and caused you to form an alliance with him in which he boasts in what he has in you, and you are unable to boast in what you have in God. You have to keep it a secret from him. See, that's one of the other things is that he kept silent about his relationship with God. He was not the one that at 15 would say, God will give me the victory today over you, and the vultures of the air will be eating your flesh because you have defied him. He couldn't say that. He had to tuck in himself and hide the truth from both his nation and from the culture that was contrary to his nation. But these princes right now are going to be used by God. And you would think that what they are saying, in fact, is reasonable. And that's, that's what David is going to have a whew moment. The princes of the Philistines, they were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow return that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him and do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master if not with the heads of these men? They're seeing that David very likely would turn. Is this not David of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Who's hearing this? Achish is hearing it. Who's with Achish? David's hearing it. He all of a sudden is being humiliated and humbled. Why? Because these guys are accurately saying, do you realize who this guy is that's riding with you? He sings songs to God. He makes others sing songs before God. He prays to God. When he's doing God's will, he is truly a contender against what we want. And that's his people. Get him away from us. And so therefore, one of the things that we see in this area of rejection is that God may, in fact, incite a riotous opposition of what you are doing, how you're doing it, because you've made an alliance contrary to the person that he's made you. And he very often will say, I'm going to have you rejected. You're not going to like it, or at least you're going to be humiliated because of it. But I'm doing this to free you from the compromise. This would have been very humiliating for you. Oh, no, they're playing my hit record. Oh, no, they're reciting what the maidens were singing. Ugh. Because everything up to now for a year and a half, nobody would have imagined it. And that's one of the things that happens is that we change our disposition so that we don't rile the culture up. It's just an easy groove. But then God says, I'm going to rile them up for you then. I love you so much, and I have so much in store for you, that I'm not going to leave you. You're actually going to be humiliatingly ousted. And you're going to know it, that it's me. And you're actually going to appreciate it because you couldn't figure out how to get out of it. And that's another thing about God's redemptive love is that when we can't figure a way to get out of it, 
God makes a way for us. And at times it may be by that, extracting us by rejection because at some point in time we defected. We were defectors. We had a conscience on what we should do and where we should be. But for a moment it just seemed to work out better to just let down and let go and go with the next best option than what would have been God's best. Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you've been upright, and you're going out, and you're coming in with me, and the army is good in my sight. Of course it was good. You're the next king of the Jews with him. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. This is where the parallel concerning the symbolism of Satan fades a bit. Because Satan doesn't speak good things about us. Therefore, return now and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. My guys are angry at me now because of you. Get out of here. Now, for David right now, again, he's realizing that he's being rescued. And you're going to actually see him try to pat it. This is his reply. So David said to Achish, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Who's he talking about? He's talking about his people. He never set his hand against his people. He was always actually behind the scenes killing Amalekites, killing other Philistine tribal nations. So he was never harming his people, but his people never knew what happened to David. They really never knew in the context of that because they could never find his whereabouts. And if they did, and they found out that he was in a city that once was held by Gath, they would have said, oh, I don't get this. I don't get why he's with them. We know that city. We know that king. We know the history. But David right now in this is very often also posing the same question that we pose at the time of being culturally rejected. Why? Why can't I be with you? Why can't this make sense? Why can't we make it work? Come on, a little bit of me, a little bit of you. Let's do the dance. It'll get better. Things will change. Don't be so ruthless. Don't force this. In essence, we know that some Psalms declare that in this situation, this would have been just like when he had feigned insanity in Gath once before. And so what we see him is in the politicking right now. Because it means this is his out of not going into battle Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to battle. Now therefore rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So in closing, there's your answer. In the morning, 
at the crack of dawn, you depart. Where are they departing to, though? They're leaving right now this, this place, the hub of Philistine strength and the king right now, Achish, but they're doing it together. You got to leave. You got to make a determination that that alliance has to break off now. Now where are they headed? They're headed to the fortress of Ziglag, which is still in what? Philistine territory. They're not yet where they belong, but at least they're leaving behind the place that they should have never been at. Ziglag was the property of the Philistines. And sometimes that's what the Lord does, taking us in increments away from the most immediate disaster to bringing us closer to redemption, salvation, reuniting with Him, changing what others perceive about us, getting on the right track. And that's what is happening right now. But I will say, and it will come in the next chapter, that the consequence of where David has aligned himself now spills out to the families that he was overseeing, which is what we are to understand in principle is always the potential consequence and folly of sin. It does splash on our shoreline. It does come up to our doorstep. It does enter into our homes. So each and every one of us need to be cognizant of the dangers of what it means to compromise as believers in any area that the Lord has made evident to us. And he does, doesn't he? And really, his desire is to make it evident before there is a consequence. All we have to do is say, okay, so here's where I'm at. I'm in fear. Okay, here's where I'm at. I'm exhausted. Okay, I'm believing lies. Hmm, three out of three, that doesn't look good for me. I'm vulnerable now to making a decision that I'll regret. So when you're at that point, you have to talk that over with the Lord. I am now three and three of making a decision that I'll regret. Lord, save me now, as opposed to later when the consequence of my decision will be effectively harming others. Pull me from it. Save me from it. That's the principle right now. 